We're going through our Things to Come series, and we're looking at various events that are on the prophetic horizon, things that are going to be coming our way. Here's a bit of a timeline that we've been using. And so the next thing that we see on the horizon, the prophetic timeline, is the rapture of the church. This is the imminent return of Jesus Christ, where there's nothing that needs to be fulfilled or to happen before the rapture of the church. This is the next thing that's really on the horizon for us. After the rapture of the church, it's going to lead into the tribulation period, a seven-year period. We've taken time the last two Sundays to really break down what the tribulation is all about, and it's broken down into two three and a half year sections, increasingly getting more and more uh, difficult and such as the time goes on in that tribulation. But then at the end of the tribulation, which is where we're at now in our study, <clears throat> is the second coming of Jesus Christ. It tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, now when he had spoken these things while they watched the disciples, he, he was taken up, Jesus was taken up in a cloud, received him out of their sight. And while the disciples looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up in heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you in heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go in to heaven. So there they are on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is gathering his disciples together and he's sharing with them after all these things were said, he was just taken up to heaven. And the disciples are Stuck sitting there like, well, that's kind of cool, but you know, how, are you coming back like in a few hours or are we talking a few days or weeks? Like how long should we be kind of waiting here? And they're, they were expecting Jesus to return. And it took two angels, two men to come alongside them and say, hey, listen, yes, he's coming back just as you've seen him go into heaven. But first of all, go and wait for the promise of the filling of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. There's still some time to unfold. And we've been waiting now 2,000 years since Jesus ascended to heaven, but nevertheless, we understand and know what scripture says that Jesus is coming back again. Just as he left, to, uh, left in front of them bodily and physically, he's gonna return bodily and physically and set his foot down on this earth again. And we're gonna talk a bit about that here. Now, Last week, we looked at, at the close of the tribulation, and we saw how the, the systems of the world were being judged. Oftentimes, in the end times, they're being referred to as Babylon or Mystery Babylon, and that was sort of the, the system or the platform that the Antichrist was using to carry out and exercise his authority and power in the world. It consisted of that that Babylonian system consisted of a political and economic system, but also consisted of a false religious system that were merged together to lead people away from the Lord. That's why it's called Mystery Babylon, because it was leading people in opposition to God, much as Babylon has always kind of stood for through scripture. And so as those systems were in opposition to God, we saw at the end how those systems were being destroyed, being judged. They were coming to ruin. And it's answering all those questions that we often have of when justice is gonna finally prevail. Lord, when are you gonna come and bring into account all the wrongdoings, all the things that are against you? God, when are you going to come and bring that justice once more to the world. Well, that's answering all these things for us here in Revelation. And so when we pick it up here in Revelation 19, 
It's with that backdrop now of that judgment that's kind of being exercised. And we read in Revelation 19, verse 1, After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with their fornication and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, praise the Lord. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. So there's a great rejoicing that's going on now at the end of the tribulation because God is finally judging all evil sin and wickedness time is up for that run of wickedness to just kind of have its way and that's dominated so much of the world and even in what we see we see the things that are going on in the world the wickedness and the evil and a lot of people think well if all this is going on then how can there be a god how can god's not stopping all that that's an excuse a lot of people make well god is going to bring an end to all those things it says it says in verse 4 and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah again. Praise the Lord. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God for or all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. This is exciting stuff here right now, right? You guys excited or is it just me? I'm trying to, yeah, okay, great. Uh, I mean, I was feeling like I was carrying enough excitement for all of us, but I thought I could share that and we could all participate in that joy together. But they're singing out, hallelujah, just repeated in these first few verses of Revelation as the Lord is getting ready to ascend to this world in this victorious triumph. And they're saying, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now understand, God has never ceased reigning. We can look at things in the world and go, well, is God just sort of taking a bit of a break right now? Is he taking his foot off the pedal? Is he really in control when you see all these things going on? God has never stopped reigning. He's continued to sit on the throne and exercise his authority and rule, but he's allowed the enemy to have time in this world right now to give people a choice whether or not they're gonna follow God or not. Unless there's a choice, there cannot be a true loving relationship together. So God's allowed the enemy to have a a, a time in this world to give that option in a sense. But now we see here in Revelation 19 the time when God will bring an end to every other way and establish his way as the only way. It's now coming to fruition where we will see clearly the Lord's reign and power and authority being exercised when he brings an end to every other way and establishes his way as the only way. The Lord God omnipotent, all-powerful, truly reigns and we're about to witness that power. And notice what we read there. The marriage of the lamb, it says, has come and his wife has made herself ready. Who's the wife? That's the church, the bride of Christ. That's you and me, the redeemed in the Lord. We're there coming back with Jesus. We've been, in, we've been with the Lord in heaven for seven years during the tribulation period. We've been raptured up. We've been with the Lord just like that Jewish wedding, the Galilean wedding depicted when the 
the bride and the groom would come together, be engaged, and there'd be the betrothal where there were more, you know, um, ceremonially and officially brought together, but the bride and the groom would be separate still after that while the groom was, was preparing a place for his bride at his father's house, building that add-on. And the, the bride would not know when the groom would be coming again. But when the groom's father said, everything's done, past inspection, son, well done, everything's done, you can go get your bride. And the groom would come at a time when the bride wouldn't know. And the groom would come and bring his bride back to his father's house where the, the marriage celebration was beginning. They would enter in the bridal chamber. And for seven days, they would celebrate here while the bride and the groom were being waited on hand and foot. It was like a sweet vacation for them. One of the only times they would rest and cease from their work during this time. Well, we've been with the Lord now for seven years in the tribulation and the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Look at what we read in verse eight of Revelation 19. Verse eight, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So here we see the church now being clothed in fine linen. Now, understand, we're not dressed in what we provide for ourselves. We're not sitting here clothing ourselves as oftentimes as believers. We can begin to think we've got to put on our best. We've got to really make ourselves look presentable so that we can be accepted before God. We're already with Jesus, but this is not, and when we read, let me just say, when we read a verse, like verse eight, where it says, the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, that can bring a lot of confusion and cause a lot of people to think, oh yeah, see, it's right there. It's the righteous acts of the saints. So I've got to perform righteous acts so that I can be accepted, so that I can be saved ultimately. Can I just say, the fine linen being the righteous acts of the saints is not about your righteousness. It's about the righteousness of Jesus. We're putting on now the righteousness that's been given to us through Jesus Christ who died on a cross. It says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this is not about our righteousness and us trying to put on our best and try to clothe ourselves. It's about being clothed in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And it's interesting in that Jewish wedding, when the guests would come, the groom's father would often have white robes that he would hand out to his guests because back in that day, you know, there wasn't a premium really on laundry, not a big priority. Certainly showering was not something that was a daily occurrence. And so for the guests to come, you know, oftentimes it's old garments, the groom's father would have white robes clean and ready for the guests to come. That way when, you know, we see those parables of guests coming in that didn't say that they were invited, they, they stood out. They weren't wearing the white robes. We've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But I love what we read in verse 10. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Understand something, my friends, that prophecy is really all about Jesus. And it's to make Jesus known. We live in a day where a lot of people have just gotten discouraged and kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, just disillusioned with prophecy. Oh, you guys have been talking about that since, you know, 
70s and uh, all, all this stuff. And it's just, you know, why do we need to keep talking about it? And we don't want to deal with prophecy. We just want to deal with the here and the now and that kind of a thing. And, and sadly, prophecy is kind of taken a, a back seat in a lot of churches and among a lot of Christians. But here we see that the spirit of prophecy is Jesus, or Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's all about him. When we talk about prophecy, we're not talking about trying to figure out you know, conspiracy theories or try to put things together and figure out what this might be or what that might be. We're saying, we just wanna testify of Jesus. That's what it's all about. We wanna bring glory to him. This is a great way to be encouraged and strengthened in our walk with the Lord. Now, this is where picking it up in Revelation 19, verse 11, this is where it really gets good. I know you've already been going, man, this is good already right now. Right? That's what you guys are saying? It's already been great? So we've just been awesome. Just, okay, no. But listen, let's pick it up in verse 11 here. This is what here now we've been really waiting for here. It says, verse 7, now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew ex- except himself. Verse 13, and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's speaking of the church again, the armies in heaven no doubt angelic armies as well but that's us we've already seen he comes with his wife his wife has made himself made herself ready the armies in heaven here this is us coming clothed in fine linen we're riding white horses as well i don't know how many people like riding horses or how many people are freaked out about riding horses but one day you're gonna be riding a horse and a white horse it'd be amazing i told the other i'm gonna be like showing up i'm gonna be like long flowing hair blowing in the wind as i'm like yeehaw come on right i don't know if it'll be like that but in my in my vision it is but um we're gonna be riding horses along with jesus coming back with him at his side at this important monumental exciting time at his second coming verse 15 Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So here we see, oh man, this is it. This is kind of the pinnacle right here. Jesus emerging from heaven and making his victorious ascent to this world as that conquering king. And we're right aside these armies in heaven. But we see some very interesting depictions in these verses we've read. Verse 13 seems a little bit interesting because it says he's, got, he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That's speaking of Jesus. He's wearing a robe that's dipped in blood. And we look at that and go, that seems very odd for this conquering king coming riding in. And we oftentimes might uh, liken that or, or think this is, you know, uh, the blood shed on the cross at Calvary as he paid the penalty for our sins. It's a reminder of what he's done. We think maybe this is the blood shed for our forgiveness. But when you look at the context and ultimately what we see elsewhere in scripture, this blood seems to be the blood of his enemies that Jesus comes conquering and wiping out at that battle of Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon 
is not so much a battle as it is more of a, a campaign. There's a series of events that are taking place at the second coming of Christ. We're gonna get into those here today. But the word Armageddon gets a lot of play in our prophetic end time scenarios, in our prophetic, you know, uh, posturing and dialogue. Movies are made, you know, all about Armageddon, right? The, the doomsday kinds of things that are happening. In fact, movie called Armageddon, Bruce Willis has to fly up to an asteroid and drill a hole through it to save the world from sudden destruction and uh, everything like that. So we got these ideas of these end times scenarios that are taking place. But yet that word Armageddon is only found one time in the Bible. Revelation 16, verse 16. And it comes from two Hebrew words, Har Megiddo, or hill, mountain, Har, hill or mountain of Megiddo. The very name Megiddo means place of troops or place of slaughter, which is very fitting as we shall soon see. Now this area is located southeast of the modern port city of Haifa in the plain of Estrelon. The area, some 60 miles north of Jerusalem and referred to at times as the Jezreel Valley. It's about 14 miles wide, 20 miles long. And it's been the grounds for many battles that have taken place throughout history. In fact, many say that more wars have been fought on this piece of real estate than in any other place on the earth. It was here that Barak defeated the armies of Canaan in Judges chapter five. Gideon met the Midianites here, Judges seven. Josiah, the ally of Babylon, king of Israel, was defeated and slain here. Samson took on the Philistines in this place. Titus and the Roman armies used this place. British General Allenby also used it in defeating the Turkish armies in 1917. Napoleon called this stretch of land, the Jezreel Valley, the most natural battlefield of the whole earth. But remember, this last day's battle of Armageddon is not so much gonna be a battle as it's gonna be more a bloodbath as the Lord simply comes with a word, a sword coming out of his mouth we saw, and it's just the word slaying the enemies of God. Judgment is coming. And we look at that and we think, oh, how harsh, how strong, but yet we see that evil is going on in the world and we wonder when is this going to stop? Sin needs to be judged. Evil needs to be judged. And Jesus is coming to do just that. But let's discuss now kind of this campaign of Armageddon that's gonna unfold at the return of Jesus because we think, you know, battle Armageddon is this battle going on, Jesus comes, brings an end to it, and that's it. But there's a lot going on at this time that Jesus is getting ready to come back to this world. First of all, we see how the allies of the Antichrist are gonna be assembling themselves together there in the Valley of Megiddo, or the, the Jezreel Valley as it's often referred to. Turn to Revelation chapter 16. Like I said, we're gonna be turning to a bunch of scriptures. Get your place in Revelation 16, keep your place in Revelation 19, and just as a advance, maybe jump into Zechariah chapter 12. Or no, Zechariah chapter 14. Get yourself ready there. Zechariah 14 as well. If you're not sure where that is, it's right after the book of Haggai. That should help out a lot. So look at Revelation 16. I know you're flipping a bunch of passages. I'll let you kind of get to some of those. But Revelation 16, verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, 
out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Here's that unholy trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And it says, verse 14, they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Jesus says, behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and see his sh- and they see his shame. And they gather themselves together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. Here's where we get this big event, the Battle of Armageddon. This one verse, the only place it's mentioned, Armageddon, right here. But we see the, the, the armies that are being led by the Antichrist conspiring together to come against God and against the people of God, which is at this time Israel. This is the time in this seven-year tribulation that God is looking to restore Israel and bring them back to a faith in him. God's not done with Israel yet, everybody, just so you know, all right? And he's gonna be awakening them through this time as we'll see. So the allies of the Antichrist are gathering together in the Valley of Megiddo, Jezreel Valley. But then we see the second stage, is there's the destruction of Babylon. Look at Revelation 18. Revelation 18, verse one. Here we see the destruction of Babylon. It says, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Go down to verse seven. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. It's a judgment of the Lord coming against Babylon now and the systems that have been in place for the Antichrist to carry out his rule and, uh, and, and, and his rule and his authority here during this time. So we see Babylon be destroyed by the Lord judging her, and then the armies of the Antichrist are gonna make their way now from the Valley of Megiddo, Jezreel Valley, down to Jerusalem. The third stage is gonna be Jerusalem being laid siege to and being um, conquered in part. Look at, at uh, this is where we're gonna turn to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14. And again, I want you to see how scripture throughout the Old Testament has been already prophesying and preparing for these kinds of events unfolding. Zechariah 14, verse one. Behold, the day the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the house is rifled and the woman ravished half of the city shall go into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go fight or go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Keep your place in Zechariah. But here we see the armies of the Antichrist coming against Jerusalem. But then again, the Lord going forth and fighting on her behalf. And then the armies of the Antichrist, as you see now, 
are gonna make their way from Jerusalem and they're gonna come down to Bozrah. Bozrah is in Edom. And what's interesting is this is where Petra is. Now you'll remember us talking about that last week if you were here with us, but we saw how midway point of the tribulation is when the Antichrist really shows his true colors. He's brought Israel in a peace treaty. They've accepted him as their Messiah. They've bought in hook, line, and sinker. But midway point, the Antichrist is gonna go into the temple. He's gonna seek to be worshiped as God. Jesus said, that is the abomination desolation. And when you see that, you need to flee. So Israel is gonna see that happen midway point in the tribulation, and they're gonna run. This is when they begin to have their eyes open to realize this is not the guy they thought he was. This is not their Messiah. This guy's trouble. And they're going to run and they're going to flee to a place called Petra, we believe, that is in Edom, that's here at Bozrah, that is a, a super fortified, interesting city. I've been there. It is amazing to see. And it's a place where they're going to dwell in safety as God is going to protect them from the advancement of the Antichrist that right at this time, midway point of the tribulation, is just breathing out just complete vile hatred towards Israel. And Israel is gonna feel attacked and threatened on every front. But here now, they're gonna be Petra and the armies of the Antichrist are gonna come and make their way to Bozrah. But then it's here. It's here in Petra as Israel has been dwelling, protected by the Lord, that they're gonna have their hearts begin to turn. And there's gonna be a shifting that's gonna take place spiritually as there's gonna be a regeneration of their heart. Look at what Zechariah chapter 12 says. Turn with me to Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12 verse 10. Because this fifth stage is that national regeneration of Israel. God's gonna begin to draw them in by his grace and they will look unto Jesus, but this time it's gonna be very different. This time it's gonna be with hearts of understanding to realize that he was the one all along. They rejected him the first time, but now they're gonna recognize him to be the promised one, their Messiah, the Savior. It says in Zechariah 12, 10, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, Jesus, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, there shall be a great mourning at uh, great mourning in Jerusalem, like the morning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. Interesting. Zechariah twelve ten is very interesting because in the original Hebrew, there's an untranslated word after that phrase. They will look on me, and it's the Hebrew letters Aleph and Ta. It's the first and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. In other words, this verse could be read, then they will look on me, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, whom they pierced. Suddenly, Israel is waking up. Their hearts are being turned to the Lord. There's a, a regeneration, but a repentance. They're mourning over the understanding that they rejected their Savior. Jews have had a hard time with this passage. Not only does it predict how their Messiah would die, piercing long before that form of crucifixion was even in practice, but they wondered, how could God be pierced? It's all explained in the first coming of Jesus, who came as fully God yet fully man. 
And here's the one they rejected. But he came and fulfilled the very things that was always foretold of him. Psalm 22, verse 16. They pierced my hands and my feet. By his stripes, we are healed, his, his piercings. Revelation 1, verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. You see, guys, this is the time, like Paul was saying in Romans 11, when Israel will begin to have their eyes open. He writes in Romans 11, verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away in godliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is the time when Israel has their eyes open. They've been blinded in part, but there's coming a time when that blindness will be lifted and they will recognize Jesus for who he is and there will be a great turning to Jesus, it's what Paul says, not that all Israel will be saved just for the default of being a Jew, it's not that all Jews are gonna be saved, it's all of Israel at this time, that remnant that's left after this tribulation period will be saved because they will see Jesus, they will recognize him for who he is, and they'll turn to him. Well then, that leads us to our sixth stage in this campaign of Armageddon, and that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63. So remember, where's Jesus calling out to Israel right now? They're down in, in Bozrah, in Edom, right? They're being awakened spiritually to the reality of who Jesus is. But look at what we read now in Isaiah chapter 63, verse one. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, they ask, and your garments like going to treads in the winepress? He says, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples, no one was with me, for I've trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I've stained all my robes. Revelation 19, what do we see the second coming of Christ? He had a robe that was dipped in blood. This is speaking of the judgment that's being poured out. This theme of the wine press is one that you'll see throughout Scripture. You read it in Revelation, you read it here in, in, um, in Isaiah. You see it elsewhere in the prophet's writings. This idea of, of judgment coming. But Jesus is coming back. And he's revealing that he's coming back with, with victory. Conquering over enemies. And then we move to this battle from Bozrah. This battle just continues to move on. Or this um, progression moves on because it's not much of a battle as you're seeing here the progression moves on from Bozer to the valley of Jehoshaphat Joel chapter 3 turn there Joel chapter 3 all right 
Joel, where did you go? It's coming. Oh my goodness. Where'd you go? I can't find it now. There it is. All right, Joel chapter 3. Yep, page 884 for those of you that need to find out. Okay, so Joel chapter 3 verse 12. And, and here's what we read, read here now. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. It's right below Jerusalem, south of Jerusalem. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down for the wine press. There it is again. The wine press is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. So from Edom, Bozrah, they move up to Jehoshaphat where the Lord again meets them in, and brings an end to these conspiring armies. And then, eighth stage. Here now we see the victory ascent upon the Mount of Olives. Just like the disciples were there with Jesus when he sent to heaven. The two angels said, the same person that has left you in this way is going to come in like manner. He's going to come and set foot down on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah chapter 14. Go to Zechariah chapter 14. We're going to pick it up there in verse 3. Zechariah 14, verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Man, that is what you call making an entrance. Wouldn't you say? This is the arrival of Jesus Christ now setting his foot down on the earth. And I love being there on the Mount of Olives where you look out and you see the city of Jerusalem. Right there. Anybody been to Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives? Oh man, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? We've had a chance to sit there and just worship Jesus on the Mount of Olives. And what we love to do, we love to tell people, hey, take your cameras and just kind of point them to the sky, take a picture. Because right there, that's where Jesus is going to make his arrival. Right there. It's coming. That, that's the, the very sky right there that he's going to be coming back and showing himself. But all the world is going to see now him coming again. But here's an issue. Here's an interesting problem. We believe that when he comes, as I said, he's going to set foot on the Mount of Olives. And it's going to just um, split in two. He's going to make his entrance into Jerusalem we believe just like he did at the triumphal entry when he came and arrived on Mount of Olives and he rode down on that donkey as people are placing their palm branches there and this time he's not coming on a donkey he's coming on a on a white horse he's going to make his way down the Mount of Olives and then enter in through the eastern gate just like he did as he made his way into the temple grounds but here's an interesting situation. As you can see maybe in that picture the eastern gate along the wall there here's what the eastern gate looks like today it's sealed up. It's closed up. And in fact, there's an interesting passage in Ezekiel 44, verse 1, that says, Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no man shall enter by it. Because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. Now, Dr. David Reagan gives some very interesting insight on this prophecy. 
This prophecy, he says in Ezekiel, was partially fulfilled more than 400 years ago in 1517 when the Turks conquered Jerusalem under the leadership of Suleiman the Magnificent. And he commanded that the city's ancient walls be rebuilt and in the midst of this rebuilding project, for some unknown reason, he ordered that the eastern gate be sealed up with stones. So legends abound as to why Suleiman closed the eastern gate. The most believable one is that while the walls are being rebuilt, a rumor swept Jerusalem that the Messiah was coming. Suleiman called together some Jewish rabbis and asked them to tell him about the Messiah. Who is this Messiah that you're waiting for? And they described the Messiah as this military leader who would be sent by God from the east and he would enter the eastern gate and liberate the city from foreign control. So Suleiman then decided, well, you know what? We can't let that happen. Let's seal up the eastern gate. Let's block him out in hopes that this would not be able to happen. He also put up a Muslim cemetery that still exists there today. And we've been there on that site, Muslim cemetery in front of the gate, believing that no Jewish holy man would ever defile himself by walking across the cemetery. So they thought, just like the enemy, to foolishly think, oh, we can stop God from doing this. Let's seal up the gate. Let's put a cemetery. This is surely going to thwart God's plans. And you just see the futility and the foolishness of the enemy. Why? Because when we see what the word says, when Jesus comes back at a second coming, he's going to set foot on the Mount of Olives, and that place is just going to blow up, man. It's going to be split into that eastern gate. It's just going to, boom, be disintegrated, and Jesus is going to make that triumphal entry in now as the conquering Savior and King of the world. Isn't that going to be exciting? This is where I believe, you know, and, and the the original gates of the city in fact are down below they've been built over obviously and so the 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 small the the original gates are there but there's an interesting passage in psalm 24 verse 7 that says this lift up your heads O you gates and be lifted up you everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in who is this king of glory it's the lord strong and mighty the lord mighty in battle Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. I believe when Jesus sets foot on the Mount of Olives, again, it's that just incredible earthquake, and we saw that happen with that last bull judgment, the great earthquake on the world. I believe the Lord's gonna set foot. Things are just gonna disintegrate, and those gates are just gonna be exposed. They're gonna be lifted up, and Jesus is gonna come through as the king of glory, strong and mighty. The Lord of hosts is his name, the king of glory. This is Jesus Christ who's coming, coming soon. Man, what a day that's gonna be. And we get a front row seat to all of that. Is that awesome? Maybe right there with him, just witnessing all of this. These are gonna, this kind of geographical sort of disruption is gonna have an effect even in the, the millennium. We'll get into that next week when we talk about that. But Revelation 19, go back there, Revelation 19, and let me just wrap up with this chapter here. Go to verse 17, we read this. Revelation 19, verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. 
that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. It says there in verse 17, gather together for the supper of the great God. This is the second supper that we're introduced to in Revelation 19. But let me tell you, you don't want to be at this dinner. This is not for us. Now, you need to be at one of those two dinners. We have the marriage supper of the Lamb, but we have the supper of the great God. One leads to eternal life, and one leads to everlasting death. This here is the culmination of the battle of Armageddon. And again, it's not so much a battle because the nations are going to be led along by a satanic deception. And they're gonna be brought to a great slaughter as Jesus simply speaks the word and they're gonna be done. And that great supper is gonna be simply the birds just feasting on the flesh. You know, this is a very different depiction, I think, that we often have of Jesus. We look at Jesus and he's gracious, loving, compassionate savior, and he is all of that. But again, this is answering that question that we oftentimes ask. If there's a God, why is evil running rampant in the world? Why isn't it being stopped? Well, this is answering that. There's coming a day when it will all be put down. Every evil, every wickedness, every sin, sin needs to be judged. And if it wasn't, we, we sometimes think, you know, when Jesus comes back, well, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just wait till that point. I'll live my life the way I want now, but when he comes back, well then, he'll just, he's loving. He's gracious, he'll just accept me. And he's loving and he is gracious, but sin needs to be judged. And he's coming to judge every sin and wickedness and rebellion against him. And praise the Lord. We don't have to wait for that day for sin to be judged. That sin was judged on the cross at Calvary when Jesus came his first time. To come into this world as one of us, to identify us, but to go to the cross where he would go to the cross and be crucified. Why? Because sin needed to be judged. And he took the judgment of God upon that cross. God's wrath was poured out upon him for the sin of the world. Jesus took your sin and he took my sin and he paid the penalty for it there on the cross so that those that put their trust in Jesus as the one that forgives them and saves them can have everlasting life now and know that your sin is covered. We're clothed in his righteousness. But you can't wait for that for a future day. That needs to be done now. And if you've not done that, you don't have an assurance of that salvation, whether you're watching online or you're here today, if you don't have an assurance of that, that you, you've been coasting through life thinking, well, I go to church, I've heard about Jesus, oh, I believe he's there, and you're just waiting for everything just to kind of fall into place. No, you need to take action. It's not action to make yourself right. It's action saying, I know I'm not right, and I'm in need of saving. I need forgiveness. Jesus, only you can do that. So I confess my sin, I repent of it, I turn from it, and I turn to you. That's what we're called to do. And when you do that, you can have an assurance that you're saved and that you won't even be here when this happens. You won't be here through the tribulation. You'll be with Jesus in heaven. Receive that today. If you need to know more about 
what it means to receive salvation, come and talk to me or talk to somebody that'll be in the front here after the service. We'd love to share more with you. But let's wrap up verse 19. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the throne, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's a good time to break for lunch right about there, isn't it? No. Crazy. Worship team, actually, if you guys would just come up and prepare yourselves, we're going to close with a song here. But here we see now the enemies of God finally the ones that were instigating much of this the beast who's the antichrist and the false prophet that are working in cahoots together it says they're captured and they're thrown into the lake of fire that's speaking of hell Gehenna and understand these two the antichrist and the beast are the first residents of hell nobody's in hell today not even Satan Satan we'll see is going to be captured and kept at bay during the millennium. We'll talk about that next week. But Satan's not even in hell. He's roaming the earth, seeking whom he may devour. He is having access to heaven. Hell has been a place, Matthew tells, Jesus says in Matthew that hell was a place that was designed for the enemy, for Satan, and for his demons. Sadly, Satan is looking to deceive people and drag people down to hell with them. It's not the outcome that has to be our fate as we put our trust in Jesus, knowing that he saves us and life and eternal life is found only in him. People that die today, apart from faith in Jesus, they are in a place called Hades. It's, it's kind of like a holding place until their final judgment. Hades is not comfortable. It's a place of torment. Luke chapter 16 tells us that. But then Hades is going to give up their dead after the millennium at the great white throne judgment. And the dead are going to be judged. And they will be placed then into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are, where Satan will eventually be. We'll talk about that next time as we get into it. But understand, now that Christ has arrived, the kingdom has come. The redemption is fully realized glory awaits and we're going to talk about what the millennium is all about what it looks like and we'll deal with that next sunday let's stand together and let's sing